Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, pretty big one, pretty big one, Dennis Lixon of the band Refused, of the band International Noise Conspiracy, of the band Final Exit, of the band Garbage Pail Kids, of, of, of uh, AC4, more, 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 a legend, a music legend, uh, and it, someone I've wanted to have on the show for a very long time, a huge influence on not just myself, but my band as well, more on all that in a second, but first... If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the uh, email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk, and there's an Instagram page uh, at Instagram, or, or <laughs> Instagram uh, at turnedoutapunk, and they are all run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker, but this one was kind of my booking. Tristan Abraham. Tristan is someone who has been uh, essential to the show and, you know, essential to my life as my my baby brother, but someone who really came on board this show and, and kicked it into high gear. So thank you very much, Tristan, for all your hard work. But you can send him messages. You can find me on various forms of social media at left for damien If you'd like to support the show, the best way of doing that is by telling each and every one of your friends, letting them all know that you like this thing and like what we're doing around here. You can also uh, support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on your pa- podcast listening platform of choice. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came on board and said, Damien, do this podcast. Just don't do it losing money and we will support you doing it and you can just book whoever you want to book. And that's what I do, you know, so I can have a a show where I have all sorts of guests from all different worlds of punk. So thank you so much Vans for all that. And they also, they take me on these great trips. I just got back from one. There'll be a, a, a project dropping soon out of those trips that I went on for Vans, but you'll hear more of that soon. But anyway, thank you so much for Vans for the support of this thing. And, uh, yeah. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, Dennis from the band Refuse. Now, he's been in a lot of other bands, as you heard off the top as well. He is someone who's had an indelible impact on punk and hardcore and and all alternative music, you know? Like, that band Crazy Town covers one of his songs, for Christ's sakes. You know, they're a, a band, Refuse specifically, who I'm talking about now, who have had a a shifting impact on the music, you know, and there's very few bands that can say that, that when they put out a record, it caused all of punk music to kind of react to it. And and that's not just saying that everyone loved it because there's certainly people that do not like this record and do not like, uh, you know, and then people that like the earlier stuff way more than this record. But even in reacting to this record negatively, they're still reacting to this record. Like, I really do think this is a true watershed record of my, my experience in punk rock. And so I was beyond stoked to have Dennis on the show. And that's not to undermine the fact that he's also one of the best front people ever of all time in all his bands. And someone who is also a historian of punk rock music and a a fellow collector nerd record collector fan, like both he and I, you know, freaked out and and got our picture taken with Keith Moore, someone that we've hung out with, 
numerous times, but you know, we're still fans. So last time I saw him at punk rock bowling, we both were like, let's get a photo with Keith. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, who he is. And I'm beyond happy that we can finally make this thing a reality and he can come on the show and just, just vibe out and nerd out with us here. So I'm not going to yammer on anymore. I will recommend you check out the new Refuse record because the songs I've heard are incredible. And I think it's going to be a, uh, a real surprise for some people that are maybe expecting them to kind of continue on the direction they went with their last record. Um, but yeah, no, uh, check it out. I'm, I'm stoked to hear what all of you all think about it. I'm not going to yammer on anymore. Okay. I'm, I've said that, but for real this time, because sit back Relax and enjoy Dennis Lixon of the band Refused on Turned Out a Punk. Oh, shit. Actually, uh, before you listen to the episode, uh, Fucked Up is coming to Australia. So if you're in Australia, check your local concert listings. Come out and hang out and come see Turned Out a Punk in person, with, which is like my onstage banter. You know, it's kind of like Turned Out a Punk, but there's not really a guest. Maybe I'll force a Fucked Up member to do a turn out of punk with me on stage. Come out to a show and demand that, you know, shout out like a song suggestion. Okay. That's it. Anyway, uh, hopefully see you in Australia. Here's Dennis from refused on turn out of punk. Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I am amped to do this conversation with you right now because, <laughs> uh, I interviewed you years ago with Mike and Josh from fucked up for the zine that would ultimately become fucked up. And you're a massive influence on, you know, the aforementioned band that I'm in. And also just like, uh, there's just so much Swedish punk history that I want to talk to you about too. So, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm amped. Wow. I'm amped. Awesome. Awesome. I'm flattered. That makes me very happy to hear. Oh, I got to give you a copy of that zine. It's called quick, but that's the zine that All right. ultimately became, uh, became fucked up. And I think we interviewed you on the first international noise conspiracy tour when you played Toronto. That's a long time ago. A long ass time <laughs> oh, ago. Yeah, yeah. Almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Now, now that I've been in a band, I know not to ask you if you remember that. Like it's one of those things where until you're in a band, you, you kind of expect people to hold on to these things in the way that you hold on to them. And then you're like, oh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a different thing to be on the other side of the looking glass. It is. I mean, there's a lot of interactions that you do remember. There's a lot of people that you do remember. But I mean, I've played 2,500 shows. Yeah. And sometimes that just, you know, someone like, you know, you go to Germany and someone's like, have you ever been in this city? I'm like, I have no idea. And you roll into the venue and like, oh, I've been here four times. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's like, uh, it, it, yeah, it's a bit, it's, if, if you've never toured in a band like that, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to, understand i mean also like when we come to town it's a party for some people for most people going to the show for us it's another night of touring so it's yeah. like uh yeah it's a, it's a different thing yeah it's yeah no, it's i do different. not i do not remember the interview <laughs> well i'm going to take you back before that interview before any of this to yeah. uh when you first heard uh the thing that you know you'd ultimately have a hand in changing uh dennis when did you come across punk? Do you remember the first time you ever heard of the genre? Uh, well, I first found in in uh, in my record collection for some reason one day there was an Exploited Troops of Tomorrow record there. Okay, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. And I didn't really. 
I kind of liked it, but it didn't really connect. And then I had some friend of mine like, oh, that's kind of punk rock. And then eventually what led me into punk, I, I have to say, was thrash metal. Mm-hmm. Because I was a huge fan of, you know, I was into Anthrax and Slayer, and all those, all those dudes were punks. You know, they 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 used to play in punk band or hardcore band, so they were kind of like, I mean, uh, Anthrax even had that New York hardcore logo on their early records. So that was for me massive, like to get into that, and then you see the T-shirts that they're wearing, and then um, I remember hearing it. It's funny for me because a lot of it started with crossover. Someone gave me tape with. Um, it was a Chromax Age Quarrel on the A side, and it was Misfits on the B side, and that was like I was like, oh, this is crazy. And then you know, I got into stuff like the Crumb Suckers and Agnostic Front, and like that that wave of uh, of New York kind of crossover hardcore, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And was so yeah. like what what place did punk have in sort of Swedish pop culture around you at the time? Like, would they play? any of these bands on the radio or was there any sort of mention of like this sort of rich history that the country had? No, I mean, this was, it's funny because it was 1987 mm-hmm. that I got into punk and hardcore and um, it was, you know, like how things just reach an apex and then it's completely dead. Yes. And I discovered <laughs> punk when it was completely dead, you know, like one of those deals where like, there's like, one Swedish punk band still existing at that time. Yeah. And in, in, in Umeå, like when I moved into Umeå, there was like six guys that were kind of into punk and that was it. And I mean, it was like, you know, you discovered it and you're like, Oh, no one's into this. Like Mm -hmm. not a single soul is actually into what I'm into. And also for Sweden, most punks were into punk, you know, they were into pistols and clash and the Ramones. And, you know, I was into, New York hardcore stuff. And, you know, then I got into Black Flag and Mind Threat and all that. So I was also one of the few kids that were like into hardcore music, you know. Mm-hmm. M- my friends, they were punks. They were like, you know, they're wearing Ramones and Sex Pistol t shirts. And I'm like, you know, I was Dead Kennedys was like my favorite band. So it's like, it's a bit of a difference. So there was no one around at that point in time that was really into this music, which is kind of crazy. And then you have to discover. You have to discover everything by yourself. I didn't have uh, any older sisters or brother or anything like that. I just have to kind of like investigate, you know, record sleeves, thank you lists. I started buying Thrasher magazine and Pusset had that uh, Pusset one page where he wrote about punk and hardcore. And that that's kind of, you know, that's how I got into it. Wow. So it like, wh- where were you buying records? Is it like mail order at this point? Or is it just kind of like whatever fell into your hands through friends? Whatever fell into my hands. I mean... In Umeå, there were a couple of record stores, and once in a while, you could find punk and horker stuff. And the funny thing is, a lot of it is like it's like a guessing game because mm-hmm. you don't know that much. And then you're <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like I remember, uh, I remember um, reading an interview with with some skateboard guy in Thrasher, and he said, "I'm I'm into old school hardcore punk like Black Flag and Seven Seconds." I went to the record store, and they had Seven Seconds. I was like, oh, seven seconds. He was talking about that in this interview. I came home and it was ourselves with seven seconds. And yes. I it off and I'm like, oh, wait, this is <laughs> what the hell? And then the next thing I bought was skin sprains and guts, the seven inch. Mm-hmm. And my mind was just like, I have no idea what's going on here. Why is this really different? You know, and, and, uh, and you know, one day you, you go to the record store and you, you flip through it and, and you have to look at like the photos and maybe the, 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 what the band is called. And I'm like, this looks like hardcore. You you bring it home and it's it's mucky pup, 
And you're like, yeah, I don't know about this. You know, it's, this is a bit weird, but that's kind of how you had to do it, you know. And then eventually, like, so around 89, that's when we started Step Forward. And then I started reading Maximum Rock and Roll. I started uh, mail ordering stuff from, from the States. And then I got really kind of like, you know, more... I, I was aware that there was a world outside of, uh, you know, my own world, but that was a little bit later. <laughs> well, cause it, like there were other bands, um, like, were there any other local bands like playing even different types of punk? Like what's the, what's the, uh, uh, troll punk. Is that, I'm probably pronouncing that. Terribly. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. I, I, um, there was, when I got into punk in the city, there was, there was two brothers that played in a punk band. And they they went on to uh, have a band called The Vectors, and then Carl became one of really close friends, and me and him had a band called AC4 for a while. Um, and they had a punk band when when I kind of started out. And then there was an, a couple of kids who were a bit older, and they, they a band called The Join. But I think they'd broken up by the by the point where I kind of got into it. So there wasn't really. I mean, I remember when we did our first kind of punk shows. There was like one punk band and then there was like maybe sort of sleaze rock band. And then was one band that played like Credence covers and maybe like some sort of metal band. And yeah. that was like, okay, let's, you know, cause let's just gather all freaks at one place, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it was weird. Cause it was like, it was nothing out there. And I mean, you know, when I got into punk, it wasn't like, I'm like, oh, this is going to be, you know, uh, this is going to be my life or, you know, this is going to be what I'm going to make it living out of that. That, that was just, you know, that was not in the cards. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I've, I think it's amazing too, how many bands came out of that scene ultimately. And like, it's obviously a few years later and, you know, and like, and I'm sure it's like a lot of scene building that goes into why there's so many bands that come out of there, but like yeah, population wise, it's it just like, you know, you guys all pump punch way above your weight. Oh yeah, yeah, but I, I think that's generally that's true for Sweden as a yeah. country. You know, like like we 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 put out a lot of good music, and we're a small country. We're a small, sort of isolated country, and I think I think that that is also part of why there's so much good music coming from here. But I mean, yeah, when I moved to Umeå when I was nineteen, uh, I think about ninety thousand people lived in the city. Mm-hmm. So in 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 the nineties when we had like the big Umi hardcore scene, I mean, it wasn't even a hundred thousand people that lived in the city and we had shows and 600 people showed up at shows. That's wild. And it was like like all these bands and it was, yeah, it was definitely like a weird, but kind of crazy time. It was was pretty awesome that, that something, um, you know, came out of left field for a lot of people and, and had a huge impact on the whole uh, cultural infrastructure of the city. Yeah. And, and, and even just outside of hardcore too, like the way I imagine like the cultural impact of bands and, and, you know, music projects that people did afterwards, like it just, you know, it's, it's amazing. Once again, like from such humble beginnings comes this massive scene. Like at one point, you know, I remember hearing about it as the biggest hardcore scene in the world, like in, in per capita, it is. For sure. Yeah. In the, in the mid nineties, I'm pretty sure it was. And, it was it was interesting because once all of that kicked in, I mean, we started refused and and we had some f- friends start up other bands around us and and we were quite dedicated about like building a scene. You know, it was a lot of like let's build a scene. And then my friend Jose started Desperate Fight, and I kind of I need to get in on that because you know I want to we want to build a scene. And 
in our minds, you know, because we live in a small town in the north of Sweden, we figured that, like, you know, Stockholm and Gothenburg, that's where the action is. And I remember going to shows in Stockholm, and no one showed up. There were no good bands. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird, you know. But then I think this, you know, the isolation is definitely an important factor of the of 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 how it came to be, you know, how how it, it could explode in in such a fashion. Because honestly, there's nothing else to do. You know, and I, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what it is. I mean, we don't live in a city where there's tons of culture, there's tons of shows. So, you know, people gravitate to what's happening and what seems fun. And I mean, a lot of these kids are really young. And I mean, I remember when when we started like getting into this idea of like, let's build a scene and let's start booking bands from outside of Umeå to, to Umeå. And the first time I called maybe 1992, 91 or 92, I called a booking agent because I saw Sikorol was supposed to tour Europe. Mm-hmm. And I called a booking agent down south of Sweden and I called him because I worked at a student student union that, that actually did put on shows, but no punk or hardcore shows, but just they put on shows and I helped out. And I called this booking agent and I said, I want to book a sick of all show. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, of course, that's awesome. Where do you guys live? And I said, Umio. And he laughed and hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, so no sick of all show then, I guess. Yeah. You know, and, then, and then that changed. I mean, in in the... Mid '90s, people were calling us up, like begging to come to Umeå and play, which was quite, quite exciting. <laughs> did Did anyone ever come through? Like, is there even like bigger sort of artists? I mean, before. So here's the crazy part: in the mid '80s, like before I got into punk, mm-hmm. Susie and the Banshees played here. Wow! And and the Saints played here. So it's like, but that's like '82, '84. So that's that's before I got into it. So there was, a, you know, once in a while bands showed up here, and and uh, Ebba Grim played here, of course, like the the biggest Swedish punk yes. band. But but very few bands. I mean, when I got into it, very few bands came here. You know, there was like one of my first punk shows I went to was this uh, this UK band called Doctor and the Crippens. Oh and they yeah, played here. I don't. Yeah, I don't know who booked them, but for some reason they were playing <laughs> at a youth center. I'm like, oh, this is pretty fucking awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. But very few bands came came up here because it is. It's a bit of a drive, you know. Like, and, and sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. The the thing that changed was in 1993, we managed to get Shelter to come here and play, and 600 kids showed up, <laughs> and it was pandemonium. <laughs> and from that day on, it was like all the booking agencies, like all these bands, keep coming back from Umia, saying like it's fucking crazy. And yeah. uh, I think that was like the turning point. Like that that Shelter show is one of those like. Were you at the shelter show? Okay, you're old school, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was the thing with Refused up until, you know, Shape of Punk to Come, where like no record really reflected how incredible you guys were live. Like it was just like everyone that saw you guys live would come back and be like, yeah, the records are amazing, but until you see this band live, you have not experienced this thing. Like I remember Chris Logan kind of like, preaching oh, about yeah, it yeah. at a show like after <laughs> chokehold went over and, and played with you yeah, guys yeah. and just saying like yeah. they're the best band in the world and it was like you know it was like it and it, it was almost like something that spread word of mouth wise about like the whole scene in, in yourselves yeah i mean it, it's funny looking back 
So, so I'm going to tell you, give you some background on how everything started with with just the way I am on stage mm-hmm. and sort of the personality behind it. So I had a punk band and I played bass and I sang. And then I started my first hardcore band we called Step Forward. It was pretty good, like fast fucking, just fast hardcore. And the first show we're playing at this youth center. And I mean, you know, no one was into hardcore music. This is 1989. So we're... we're, we're we're backstage and we're like, it's the first show. And we're like, and our whole attitude is like, no one's going to like this. So let's just fucking go crazy. And we had no point of reference because everything you saw on like the Youth of Today records or Minor Threat, it's just pictures of people like jumping and looking nuts. tough. Yeah. You, yeah. And we were like, we don't really know how that actually works in reality. <laughs> we didn't yeah. know that maybe on a show you, you jump five times. We jumped 500 times, you know, like, like we were in the air from start to finish. And um, at the end of the set, our guitar player smashed his guitar. Our drummer took the drum stand, uh, cymbal stand, and threw it in the fuse box, and the whole place went black. And everyone's like, wow, these guys are fucking crazy. And I think for me, that was like, I'm like, oh, okay, so that's, that's how you do it. And <laughs> that just kind of stuck with me. And just to be that guy that just goes off. You know, like, like, oh, you don't know what we're all about. I'm going to show you what we're all about. And then you just go off. And I think that for me, like that, that first show fucking set the bar. Yeah. And, and it's fun. It's funny with Refuse because we kind of knew our potential. And I also remember like when we, so when we recorded, this just might be the truth, which is our first full length record. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we young kids, we didn't know. We, we recorded some demos and like an EP before that. And then. We do this record, and um, during the 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 recording of the record in the Sunlight Studio, you know, Entombed and Dismember and all these metal bands recorded in that studio. So we're like, oh, we we want that heavy fucking sound. We're touring with Shelter, so my voice is shot. Yeah, <laughs> but no one told us at this point that you can actually, if you don't want to record the vocals now, let's reschedule and do the vocal in two weeks. <laughs> so I went to the studio, and I, you know, like. And then we released the record and everyone, everyone's like, all our friends who were like, yeah, this is not as great as you guys are like. This is a bit weird. And I mean, looking, listening to it now, I'm like, yeah, you can tell my voice is completely shot. Mm-hmm. But but no one, I mean, you're a young punk. You're like, I guess we got one day to do vocals on 15 songs. I got no voice. Let's do it. Yeah, you have to. There's no, there's no chance. Yeah. Like this could only, this window could close at any second. Any second, someone's going to pull the plug and be like, yeah, yeah. you're not going to record a record. So like, let's do it. So it was very frustrating for us because we kind of knew the potential of, 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 our, of our band and, you know, the way we performed live. And then the re- records never kind of fully translated that until Shape. I mean, I think parts of songs to fan the flames of this oh, content yeah. kind of captures the energy of us and the relentlessness of us as a band. But... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, like, and, and I didn't mean to undermine any of these other records because you put out like amazing no, no. records before that. But then, but, but like, I, know, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, but I guess going back to before that, so who would have opened yeah. for that Doctor and the Crippin show? Was it like, was there like a metal band that would have played or was it a bit that band? Like, there's a pre breach band, right? Scum something? Scumback? Scumback. Yeah. yeah Scumback. Yeah. Sorry. But that, that was a little bit later, too. That was. Skimbeck is is actually kind of around, it's like kind of 1990. Who opened, Doctor and the Crippens had a, a German band called Momito 7 opening up for them. 
and I'm not sure there was a local band actually. I can't I can't actually I can't remember, you know. It's one of those deals. I mean, there might have been some some local rock band opening up because that I mean that happened too. Like they just throw some random rock band up there to play, you know, random rock music, you know. But yeah. But there was I mean, I remember, you know, that was that was the first time you see a band play like that. You're like, "Oh, that's crazy." I was a, so here's a crazy story. In 1987, just as I was getting into punk, I was kind of a metalhead. I saw Mashuga play in Home Village in front of four people. <laughs> Holy! Yeah, and that, that's in 1987. They sounded kind of like Anthrax. It was really kind of that kind of moshy kind of before they got all technical. Yeah. But I saw them in front of four people in, in this like uh, <laughs> on this dance thing, you know, and in, in, you know that it's pretty crazy. It's one of my first shows I ever went to. <laughs> So yeah, like what kind of concert were you going to other than the Mashugana shows? Like at that point, like what uh, were? I mean, at that point, I would say when when we start playing for real with with Step Forward, there was a couple of other bands. Um, There's a couple of other kind of punk and hardcore bands. So we, st- I mean, the shows you went to were basically the shows that you played. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of bands coming through, so. I mean, if you live isolated, like we always said, like you just make your own fun, you know. Mm-hmm. So we started doing a lot of shows at like youth centers, and there was like a small scene. And we, um, so in 1989, we started Step Forward, and the, there's another band called Garbage Pale Kids, which I played bass in. But they were kind of a pre-existing band. But then I finagled my way into that band as a bass player, and then we had a what did that band sound like? Called, Sorry, what? It's kind of oyish. Pretty brutal, oi hardcore. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 all right. It's it's fun, you know. It's like one of those bands that, like, a lot of kids liked it. It was in uh, half of it's in Swedish, half of it's in English, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, very brutish kind of music. Okay, mm-hmm. but uh, so and we had I we had a little like we did like Umi hardcore records. We put out tapes, and so that that's kind of when everything started in '89. And then we did a lot of shows at like youth centers across the city. And then in ni- late 91, we started Refused. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny because th- those two years, there was like a, a small punk scene. It was very punkish. Uh, most of the bands were way more punk. And Step 4 was like the, the hardcore band. Yeah. And then when we started Refused in 91, that whole scene just kind of died down. You know, when you're young, everything goes by so fast. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started refused in 91 and it wasn't until 93 94 when it really kicked off with the whole like desperate fight and all those bands it, it was like a lull for a little bit and refused was one of few active bands then but it's still like you know it's crazy because like you know you think about like from from uh teen idols to fugazi like how long that was in dc right like a little less than 10 years and it's like you're kind of building the same sort of thing in Sweden, but in a much more like what four years, three years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I never thought of it that because you're middle, you're in it, so you just look at other bands. You're like, oh, that's amazing. They're so young. They did so much. You know, I mean, I guess I mean from well, from from when I f- started my first hardcore band, very rudimentary, boom, ba, 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 up until Shape of Punk to come. That's nine years. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that that's, but I mean, it's it's not that long. And I mean, it's funny because when we did Shape of Punk to Come and it's this, you know, classic record, whatever people want to say it is, 
I was 25 and David was 22 when we did that record. I mean, you know, we're young, young people, yep. basically. Yep. Yeah. It's and pretty it's, crazy. Well, it's wild because you think about how many records there are in punk, like ever, LPs. And then just how many records of those <laughs> just changed everything. Like, I, I remember when that record came out and it just like, it's, it, it was like, yeah, it, like it was like never mind to punk rock in a lot of ways. Like, people that hated that record were influenced by it by reacting to it too. <laughs> you know, like it, it, I know, you know, like it, it, it's one of those records that just like nothing was the same. And it's funny because like I wanted to find out about this because I've had a lot of other guests from Sweden on, and obviously it's a big country and from other parts of the country, but just talk about the effects of the Bad Religion record coming out and just how everyone kind of got into melodic punk rock from that record. Uh, did that oh, record yeah, yeah. register on you at all? Or did it register, uh, you know, at, in, as North at all or in the same way? The Bad Religion records? Yeah, like the yeah, Bad Religion yeah. records change everything, it seems, from what I've been told. Yeah, a lot of kids really, that's kind of what started skate punk in Sweden, mm-hmm. you know, as we as we like to call it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like, uh, suffer no control how could it be any worse they're great records but already when when i kind of discovered that you know i was i was fucking knee deep and in you know sst control and negative approach you <laughs> yeah. know so it's like for me i really liked it but the whole skate punk thing it, it, for me it was always too happy it yeah was too like uh i don't know it, it just like it didn't you know from an early point we were like it was political and it was kind of like, you know, you wanted it to be a bit violent. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we had a lot of friends that did the whole skate punk thing and we played with a lot of those bands, but, but for, for me, it was just another good record, you know, but it, yeah, for a lot of people when bad religion, that they kind of redefined how people saw punk rock, you know, it's just quite, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it seems like up until that point, you've got that sort of raw hardcore punk sound that's happening with, you know, the band like mob 47 and, and anti yeah, yeah. and and that stuff. And then you have yeah. that, uh, the, the other sort of melodic, more punk scene happening. And then there's the bad religion record creates a, a third scene. And then at the same time, you know, the scene that you guys are creating ultimately creates like a fourth scene in Sweden simultaneously. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause a lot of that, that, what would you call trial punk and skate skate punk? It was, that was around the same time that Refuse came out. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in the mid-90s, there was this huge explosion of, of punk and hardcore across Sweden. And, and um, yeah, it was, it was quite wild. Because, I mean, just a couple of years prior, there was nothing going on. It's funny because you had in Sweden, too, you had bands like uh, Astakask, mm-hmm. which I would say is like the link in between like the raw punk. Because they, they kind of came from the raw punk background, but they're kind of melodic. So a lot of Swedish kids, that's kind of like from Astakask to Bad Religion, that's kind of a, it makes sense, you know, for mm-hmm. people to be into that. And there's a Swedish band called Strebers, which was really big in the early 90s, kind of really tralpunk, like melodic. And then, and then so Bad Religion came and it's a little bit harder edge, but it still has that melody, but it's a bit more, has a bit of a more drive to it, you know, I would say. So what was the influence then on, on the scene that you guys, or the sound that you guys were kind of going for, like the, the slower, more aggressive kind of, um, you know, cause like, uh, like I've heard, um, some of the, some of those, uh, the stuff that you guys put out on the tape comp, 
or the tape label and it seems like it was uh a lot faster and then there's something that happens almost like a, a groove hits yeah well the early days like the first uh um hardcore scene it was very punk uh mm-hmm. you know kind of like three chords fast hardcore punk rock kind of style and then when we start refused i mean it's fun because I think my ambition when when I saw Refused, I was like, I want to, you know, let's do a band that kind of sounds like Gorilla Biscuits, Negative Approach, that kind of like a bit melodic but a bit heavy. But I think what happened with us was that David came in as a drummer and he played in a death metal band. Mm-hmm. So he was like a super technical, like he he gone to music school, he knew how to play jazz. And he was a very technical drummer, you know? Yeah. And then uh, the first guitar player that we had in Refuse to later, uh, he, he joined Abinanda later. He's like also a metal guy. So I got these guys to play. So the first Refuse demo, you could hear it's me writing these songs because they're kind of fast and weird. Yeah. And then as soon as David and, and Pat start writing songs, this whole mid-tempo things happen. Mm-hmm. And, and Pat was really into like, one voice with agnostic front that kind of like like mid-tempo chug, 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 you know and so i think that's what it was i think that metal kids trying to play hardcore and then you know that that's what happened i don't think it was intentional it wasn't like we had a plan but but just like that's kind of what what we gra- gravitated towards so you'd hear the difference from i mean it's also funny because you hear the different if you listen to our first EP, This Is A New Deal, mm-hmm. it's still pretty fast and kind of raw. And then when This Just Might Be The Truth comes out, it's way slower, way heavier. And that's like a pair of the guitar player. His songwriting has really influenced that record. And then we come back with Everlasting, which is, again, more of back to a bit more of hardcore, but still has that, I would say, like, inside out burn that kind of yeah. like vibe to it yeah, yeah definitely and then uh, then because then we changed the guitar player so that's when chris kind of joined the band and he came in with that whole those type of riffs but i think yeah we were super influenced by that like like inside out burn that whole kind of mid-tempo early 90s stuff that that was going on so by this point are you just mail ordering these records or like like is there a record store that's kind of becoming the the source to get this stuff or like like how are you finding out about this stuff at this point? Uh a lot of it was mail order. Yeah. And then at, so in the like I would say 93 94 you have uh you have a record store in Gothenburg called Dolores and you have a record store in uh, Stockholm called Far Out. Mhm. And they had a lot of punk and hardcore stuff. And they had like mail order. So you call them once a week and ask them, like, what, what good hardcore <laughs> stuff do you have? You know? Yeah. But before that, it was like a lot of it was mail order. A lot of it was like reading Maximum Rock and Roll, Wide Awake, you know, seven yeah. inch. Yeah. Send $15 in an envelope. <laughs> Hopefully you'll get a seven inch. And pray, you know, that, pray, kinda, pray. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's kind of what you did for a very long time, you know, just ordering through that. And then. As time went on, I guess these records so realized that we can make money from selling like American hardcore, basically. So then it got got a bit easier. There, there are some obscure covers that you know the punk bands are doing prior to this even, and you guys were doing. Is is it like is is there like a, a like a record collector kind of digging back into the past scene that's also happening simultaneously, or is it just you know what what people were coming into and discovering on their uh, own? I think it was just what people were discovering. I don't think at mm-hmm. that point, I mean, I, I had a lot of records 
and I was buying a lot of records. But I think at that point, I wasn't really a record collector. I was just buying records because, you, you know, in, in the world, you remember this, like there was a world where all the music you had, all the music you listened to was all the music that you had. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? And for 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 young kids now to understand that, that's, it, I mean, it blows my mind. I was like, the, the music that you knew of basically were your records or maybe you and your friend's records. So, I mean, I bought a lot of records, but I wasn't really a record collector. I don't think anyone was at that point. People were just buying records basically. And some kids were lucky to find some old school stuff and, you know, you, you buy stuff just because you find it basically. So it was like, it wasn't like that, but it was, I mean, everything is random. I and mean, we had a record store in, uh, in Umeå called Garage Land Records and the guys that run the store, they're, I mean, now they're in their 60s, but they're punk guys, mm-hmm. but they're way older than us. And they were in uh, Pinheads and TVC, like these old punk bands, you know, and then yeah. they started a record store and they had a lot of punk and hardcore stuff just because, you know, they're kind of into that. So you could find Misfits seven inches in their record store in the early 90s. I went, I mean, you know, in the late 80s, I went to that record store. I bought all my Misfit LPs in that record store for nothing, you know, and like they just had them. Yeah. And then it's it's random because I mean, they weren't really that well traveled in hardcore, but once in a while you walk in, you're like, oh, holy shit. And then you bought like, you know, some cool hardcore record. And then 30 years later, you're like, oh, this is super expensive now. <laughs> 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 no one knew, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so was was that raw punk stuff on your radar at all at that point? Yeah, I mean, because Sweden is such a small country, so you knew a lot about it. I mean, uh, both Step Forward and uh, Refused was on the really fast compilations. Yes, I know. That's and and the yeah, and the early really fast compilations was just raw punk, and the people that you met when you start playing shows, you know, as as it was a, such a co- small country, like people that came out to the shows, there's like a bunch of, of, of newly sprouted hardcore kids. But then all the, like the little bit older punk kids, they were like the raw punk kids came out and they hated it. Refused. Like they were just like, like they hated us <laughs> so much. <laughs> it seems like you would have been a band that would have had to build your, like, you know, like build your audience. Like you built the scene, like, especially if you're doing something new sonically. Yeah. Yeah. Like, where did you fit in at first, or is it just, like, not fitting in at all? Not fitting in at all, basically. I mean, I think that that's what it was, and I think that's also what appealed uh, to to a lot of people. That kind of was the appeal, you know. We came with something new. I mean, and it's funny now, um, when you are a part of something that's contemporary, which we were, you don't really think about that. It's just something that's happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the sounds of, of the of the 90s hardcore i'm not saying we invented them but we were part of a movement that was inventing it as we went along with bands like you know the swedish bands like us and fireside and breach and you know but then also you had snapcase and sick of it all and you had you know like so there's there's all this movement happening that was just going on and it wasn't retro it wasn't like we were looking back to see what was going on We're, we're actually creating something as we went along so when we start playing with Refuse, because Refuse is such, uh, Sweden is such a small country that like the impact of our, our band was felt quite early on. I mean, a lot of it had to do with like the whole vegan straight edge kind of the newsworthiness of, of what that was. But 
we started playing shows in Sweden and we just played youth, center, youth centers mm-hmm. and every show, you know, we did the whole thing where we're like, after every show, me and Dave just walked out in a parking lot, talked to kids for four hours every night. And I mean, next time we came back to the small town, instead of 50 people, there's 150 people and there's two new bands. And I mean, that's kind of how you build a scene. And that's what, mm-hmm. what, what happened in Sweden. I mean, and also the, the epicenters of, um, of Swedish hardcore in the, in the mid nineties wasn't Stockholm. It wasn't Gothenburg. It wasn't Malmö. It was like, it was Umi, it was Venersborg. It was Gislave. It was like all these small towns. Cause you know, in a small town, you only need five, three, four people that are super excited, and then it can sp- spread like wildfire. So that that's kind of what we did. We just went, we played every fucking youth center in Sweden, you know? Yeah. I guess that's the other thing is Sweden has like sort of a, a, a touring circuit that I guess no one had been using up until this point with these youth centers. Yeah, yeah. And we had a... Uh, it, it's not like that anymore because the, the the whole youth center uh, culture had kind of like evaporated. But at that point, like every youth center had like a, a stage, yeah. a PA that was like you know, and and there was also uh, a network, so uh, like government funded network because we're Swedish, which meant that if you came to a city and they had a, a music, uh, um, like like a fucking group of people that got together and they're like we have this this organization and we book shows and we have practice spaces and if they wanted us to play they'll pay 200 bucks and the, the government play, pays 200 bucks so then we could get 400 bucks to play oh wow. and uh, yeah so we did a lot of those shows and we, which also meant that in, in our whole existence in the 90s and with refused I think we played two shows that were, that were not all ages. Mm-hmm. Two shows out of 700 shows that <laughs> were not all ages shows. Yeah. What were those two? It was uh, it was in Sweden and it was just like we showed up and they were like, oh, this is a rock club. It's like, you know, 18 oh, yeah. or whatever. And, yeah. and one of those shows, we brought the equipment out of the parking lot <laughs> and we played for the kids that couldn't get in <laughs> before the show. Because, you know, because reasons, you know. (laughs) That's what you do. Um, Yeah, that's what you have to do. (laughs) So was like, that's the other thing I've always wondered. It's like you had such a cultural explosion of Swedish aggressive music or Swedish music. Has that ever happened like before or since, do you think, where like you had, and or is it just that we only saw it on the internationals side of things at this point, like it had been happening forever and still happens? Well, I think the international international impact of the music of heavy music, I would say, from the nineties, it it that never happened before. I mean, there's always been good music coming out of Sweden. There's always mm-hmm. been exciting music coming out of Sweden, but in the from the late eighties, all of the nineties, with 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 punk and hardcore and metal and death metal. That was something that never happened before. And uh, all of a sudden, Swedish bands were not only touring Sweden, but they were touring Europe. They were touring America. And, and that was something that that our, our, you know, everything from Entombed to Refuse to, you know, more indie rock bands, that was like the first time that happened. And that was like, you know, late 80s, early 90s when that started to happen. So I think it was like as far as uh, 
a youth movement or, or a subculture movement. But yeah, it was the first time it actually reached, really reached outside of the borders of Sweden. Because I mean, the, the first Swedish punk in the, in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, that net never made it outside of Sweden, basically. No, and, and it's like, yeah, and as you were saying, some of the best music ever, like the Rude Kids to me, that's the first hardcore oh, yeah, band. Yeah. Like, it's they're pretty awesome. Yeah, and it sounds <laughs> it sounds to me like more hardcore than Nervous Breakdown or even middle class sounds. Yeah, I know the singer went to the UK and discovered a lot of like faster and, and more aggressive music, and he tried to bring that back to Sweden. And I mean, it's funny because in Sweden we have this in in Stockholm. Stockholm, the the punks in Stockholm were called like poser punks because they were all about like the leather jackets and the fucking spiked hair. Okay. And then you had the 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 punks in Gothenburg, they're more like working class and, and more like kind of political. Mm-hmm. And then you had the punks down south, they were all the intellectuals. That was all the weird bands. That was all like the the sort of artsy kind of. They were into magazine and they were into like like post punk and Joy Division. So it's funny, like you're looking back at like the 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 early 80s punk there's like this huge divide between like stockholm gothenburg and and malmo which is pretty awesome we look at it, they, they're very distinct in their uh their sounds and attributes <laughs> yeah like it's it's amazing how regional things were and it was like that everywhere like yeah. you look at the uk and it's it's very regional too yeah yeah it, but i mean I, it, it makes sense i mean if you if you live in a small town and you have a circle of friends are into music and one, two people discovered a, a specific band. Cause I mean, that's what it takes. Like someone in that city discovers a specific band. It makes the rounds in the city. And then the city is hugely influenced by that band. And that, you know, it just because one person brought that record to everyone's attention. And I mean, it is pretty cool how, how specific records and specific bands made different scenes what they were you know absolutely kind of cool yeah, yeah. No, it's, well it's like that it's like that um you know like there, there's uh you know like in manchester there's this there's like vinnie riley billy duffy and johnny marr all hanging out together all you know seeing slaughter on the dogs and being like okay i want to start playing like that but all taking that sound different places and look at all the worlds those three guitars would influence <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's pretty crazy and yeah. i mean it, it's 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 like that, and I think uh, regional. I mean, the Umi hardcore sound was a bit different from the Venersport hardcore, or from what happened up north in Luleå, or what was happening in Stockholm. So mm-hmm. it's like all these kind of regional differences that you can tell because of what we were into in the city, you know. And I mean, we had for for a while we had um, Desperate Fight Records, and we also had like a mail order thing. We we traded a lot of records. We had like a small distro. And of course, I brought in records that I liked, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we were into stuff like Manifesting Banner and Dead Steel Pigeon and like the more political hardcore from Europe. So that's a huge impact on our scene. And you know, maybe outside of Vimeo, a lot of hardcore kids not into those bands. It's it's quite interesting how it can affect like you know certain people's tastes define a certain sound. You know, it's kind of cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, what would have happened if the Empire record hadn't shown up in, in DC? And those yes, guys I know. never heard that. And I didn't know know about that record. It was funny because, you know, I have this project with, with a lot of these DC cats called Fake Names. Mm-hmm. You know about this? Yeah. yeah. So the first night, we're hanging out. We're sitting in, in Michael Hampton's basement. And the, the other guys say, uh, you know, like there was some 
they were like, do you like the ruts? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I guess they're all right. They were like, what? <laughs> so I have to listen to the ruts for an entire night and then Empire. And, then Empire, and I was like, yeah. I didn't know about the Empire. I'm like, what the fuck? And they were like, oh, this band, this, they're fucking amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's fine, you know. But yeah, it's, it's pretty cool because it became such a phenomenon in D.C. And all mm-hmm. these guitar players from D.C. are so influenced by that record that for most people, that's just like, a, yeah, it's fine, you know. Yeah, it's amazing oh, yeah. how like I, a, a record kept landing at a certain place at a certain time, like and and then look at the the much larger cultural ramifications from it, like you know that Empire record influencing Embrace and I guess ultimately Fugazi has begat so many bands having that that I know. kind of feel. I wonder if the guys in Empire ever be like, "Oh shit, that what? <laughs> like, how did that happen?" You know? Well, I've like it's <laughs> it's amazing to think that Generation X breaks up. Half of it goes up on to influence Fugazi, and then the other half's Billy Idol, right? And like influences all the glam I metal. Know. It's like, <laughs> it, it's, I don't know, a fascinating thing. <laughs> anyway, a bit of a digression here. Yeah, it's fine. Digressions are fun, especially when, when, when you have to be in a basement, Michael Hampton's house, to listen to Ruts all night. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, did you ever think that would happen? Like back in the day when you're just getting all these records? Like, <laughs> no, no, never, never. I mean, it's, no, it's, it's, it is quite, you know, blows your mind that, you know, like you play music and you live your life and and you listen to all these records and you nerd out about all these things cuz i'm i'm a i'm a record collector nerd type of person mm-hmm. and you do it for a long time and then and then all of a sudden like all these people that that you kind of grew up on they're like oh well we're just peers now yeah and it's it's you know what i mean but it it's a weird thing but i mean it makes sense cuz i mean that's kind of how the world works but yeah if someone when i was like 17 would have told me like one day you and Brian Baker are going to have a band together. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. That, that <laughs> seems weird, you know, but here we are, you know, I'm in a band with Brian Baker. What can I say? Um, well, I guess before <laughs> going back to when that seemed to like a weird prospect, what was uh, start records and, and how did you become hooked up with them? Like, was it, did they have big distribution right away? Cause they, they were hooked up with we bite, I think. Yeah, it was, so it was the guy that had the record store far out. Okay. And he had a record label called Chicken Brain Records, which is a classic Swedish punk hardcore type of label. So he had oh. Chicken Brain Records, and then um, he saw Refuse play, and he was like, holy shit, you guys are awesome. I want to sign you. And he started a new label um, – just to sort of like, he's like, let's start a new label so I can release Refused and not be connected with like the Chicken Brain record kind of kind of deal. So he's this guy called Frederick. And so in two weeks, he's coming to Umeå and they're going to have a party at a, a local club. And it's 25, a 25-year anniversary of start, it's called now it's it's called Star Tracks Records. Okay. So to modify the name a little bit, but it's it's 24 years anniversary. I'm going to DJ on that. Wow. But yeah, yeah. It was just him. He, he was like a sensor, and we sent him the second refused demo operation head first, and he just got in touch with me, and he said, I want to work with you guys and release your records. And then he uh, did a distribution deal with WeBite, and... Uh, they screwed us out of money and we never saw any money from we buy it or victory records. 
Yeah, well, those, I think you're not the alone in singing those songs. I think I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but like, so what, I guess like going that put you on a national stage though, like that that record, you know, both the, the EP afterwards too, or before I guess the EP, um, that got like put out everywhere. Like you, I I eventually found that used in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, so the, the first EP, the first EP we did was on Burning Heart Records. For some reason, we we made a weird deal with them. So we put out an EP on Burning Heart. This is the new deal. Oh, that came and before Pump the Breaks. Ah, okay, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. That was like the first thing. And then then we went to Star Treks, and then we did This Is Might Be the Truth and Everlasting. And the, so we bite had for a little bit. They had an American office, like we bite America, that was connected to Victory. So that mm-hmm. record came out everywhere. That was just yeah. like you know, it was. And I mean, the the hardcore world at that that time wasn't that big so you know so the record had a chance of like making a little bit of impact and then already in 90 that came out in 93 and then in 94 we put out the everlasting ep and there would be a huge european tour with 108 so that was like you know when we first like really came out to europe and played and we're touring with the american band and it was like you know that 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 had a a bit of a more impact and then we started playing shows with we did shows with like Sick of It All and Snapcase and Earth Crisis and Chokehold. And, you know, like we, we start playing a lot in Europe. Yeah. And what were the shows yeah. like in Europe at that point too? Was it like, was it the scenes, were they, they, they were huge at that point, right? Like that's the pretty, Lost I mean, and Found I mean, era. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was fine. It was, uh, I would say the big shows were like the big shows with 600 people, which I mean, we didn't know anything. We thought that was, I mean, we were like, this is amazing. There's just so many people here. Yeah. And then, you know, of course you, you play your shows where it's, you know, 10 people, but, but the, the whole one way tour, I would say we, we played, I think it was like five weeks in Europe and anywhere between, I remember playing Zurich in front of like six people, but then also we played in like Leipzig in front of 500 people just going crazy. So it was a good, Good tour, and I mean, remember, I remember when we did um, Earth Crisis, were like the big hype with the Firestorm EP yeah. course that came out, and there was like big hype around Earth Crisis. And they're so this is '95, and they were like they're coming to Europe for the first time, and Snapcase is opening up, and we were just basically told our booking agent, we're like, we'll come and play. We don't even need money. We just want to play these shows. Yeah, and that was a bit of a spectacle. That was like, I mean, it was. I mean in the in the rear view mirror maybe it was like three four hundred people but people were fucking going nuts for earth crisis and we drove from umio to fucking germany somewhere and we played three shows with snapcase earth crisis we didn't get paid we didn't have anywhere to stay we like literally you know slept in our car and then we we played at this festival in fogersta and after i mean so here's the thing we play a festival in fogersta after the festival we sleep at a gas station, just in the grass, and then our bass player left the band. Just and we hack. were just like, you fucking poser. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now, when I look back at it, I'm like, of course, anyone who is a sane person would have left the band. Yeah. But, you know, we were so into, like, the mission of what we're doing that, we, I mean, for me and David especially, it didn't even enter our mind that this was fucking insanity. Yeah. But Magnus was just like, I'm not, he was like, I can't, like, you guys, I can't do do this. And we're like, what? 
What do you yeah. mean? Travel all across the world, not getting paid, sleeping <laughs> in the fucking, you know, under the car. Oh, uh, well, that, well, th- and that's the thing is it, that that's, you know, like it's, it's for the hardcore because it's like <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. that kind of lifestyle is not for everyone. Like, and it's, you know, it's funny when you were saying that thing about, you know, playing in, in Switzerland to like six people and then playing in Leipzig to like 500, that sounds like a paid trip out of the fucked up tour diary. Like yeah, that exact same, <laughs> like exact same number breakdown too. Yeah, yeah, but I mean uh, that's what it was, and then there were certain hot spots where there was like more people and and people were more excited. And I mean, I remember so going back to Chris Logan and and, and Chokehold because we did a bunch of shows with them, and um, uh, especially in Germany, people were so pumped to see Chokehold. Yeah. And I remember being on the side of the stage and being like, oh, this is this is kind of cool, but they're super sloppy. You can't <laughs> really play. And people are going fucking nuts. And I remember us getting up on stage and, you know, like we were tight and we fucking, you know, we knew how to play. And people were just like, no, we're just waiting for Chokehold. We're going to fucking go off when Chokehold plays. And I remember being distinctly bummed about that. I'm like, fucking Chokehold stealing the thunder. What the hell is going on here? You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's funny because it's also like Chokehold had a package, right, that they were selling people. Yeah. Like, and, and it's weird to talk about, like, you know, the ebullition DIY hardcore era of bands having, like, a package. But they were like – they were like sold as a package to people and like, Oh, here's this band and they've got these explanations and it's hard and they're sloppy. And like, it was very much like a, a branding. It feels like. Yeah. 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 And I mean, people loved it. And I mean, I like, I kind of liked it, you know, I liked yeah, the idea yeah. about it, but then when I saw it live, I'm like, Oh shit, this is, Whoa, they're not very tight. But then, <laughs> no. you know, people just ate it up and you know, at that point, I was a bit bummed, but now I'm like, oh, it was pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 amazing how, you know, like at that point, you know, like before, I guess it, was, it feels like that was a moment just before everything coalesced again, you know, like everything was kind of like disrupted by, I guess, Green Day and, and Nirvana before it exploding. And it yeah. was it was this like weird moment where things were kind of in flux. <laughs> It felt like and yeah, yeah, totally, a band yeah. like Chokehold could become like the biggest band in hardcore. Yeah, for for a, for a, for a moment, yeah, they were like they were like the you the big hype, you know. And that was, I was pretty cool. I mean, I was to be fair, also in in the mid nineties, ninety five, ninety six, maybe I was really into that whole ebullition heart attack scene. Mm-hmm. I was really into the politics of that. I was really into sort of the the violence and the sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say sloppiness, but that sort of like dissonant kind of craziness that a lot of those bands brought. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I yeah, that, that was something like, like that influenced me. Cause I thought that was like, Oh, this is very exciting. And, and at that point, and that time I was really into the idea of, of the scene. You know, I was really kind of like one of those guys that like talked a lot about the scene and trying to like build the scene and helping out bands and, making fans fan scenes and you know all all that that was just me i was going like you know 100 miles an hour just like i'm the scene guy you know mm-hmm. and then we toured america and everything changed <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the first american tour 96 with snapcase opening up for snapcase okay what was that like the, the experience of that <laughs> i mean it was 
I mean, it is the experience that 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 gave us Shape of Punk to come. You know, it was like yeah. we came over and it was super exciting. I mean, we toured with Snapcase in Europe in '95, so we knew the guys, and we were super excited. Like, let's do a U.S. tour. We'd never been to the States before. It was super cool. And we came over. So '96, it's it's uh, songs to fan. And we have this metal-y edge to it. And Victory Records put out the record. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm in my, you know, like, we're, I'm wearing, like, Profane Existence t-shirts and, like, Ebullition. You know, that was that's my jam, like, that the whole punk agenda. Mm-hmm. And we came out and we were super political, very much in your face. And uh, everyone that came to our shows, because they were into Snapcase and that Victory Records scene, they hated the way we looked and they hated our politics. It kind of liked our music and everyone who I'm like, Oh, I, these bands, these people, they hated that we were in victory. They hated our music. And so they couldn't really, so it's one of these, like you're in definitely like, in a, a sense of flux. Cause you're like, yeah. Oh man, for, for us, you know, cause, cause originally I came from punk rock, you know, like, like punk rock brought me to hardcore. And so I was like, you know, a political punk guy that got into hardcore and the, the metal sound that we had was just kind of like, you know, an effect of who we were. Mm-hmm. So no one, I mean, I, I know it's not like that, but it felt like no one liked us when mm-hmm. we were over and, and toured with Snapcase. So it was a weird sensation. We're like, oh, we were, you know, like all the abolition people, they're like, oh, you guys are in victory, you're, you're sellouts, you know, and that whole conversation. And and then all these like victory records, people are like, oh, you guys are political, you're, you know, you're idiots. So we came home and I was super like, like, like I felt very disillusioned by the whole, the whole situation. And out of that came Shape of Punk to come because we were like, wow, this is weird. And we thought, you know, a lot of the like the straight edge hardcore people that we met, not into politics, they were kind of conservatives actually. And we were like, oh, wow, this is weird because for us, like the straight edge vegan thing, was just kind of the basis, you know, like, like just one part of, of our political agenda, you know, and mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, so it was, it was strange. It was very, yeah, it was a bit disheartening actually. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. And it's, it's amazing how many times people come on this show, you know, and, and talk about how, you know, like you picture your band being taken up one way, you know, and I, and I feel yeah. this from my personal experience. And then you're like, you people are taking up completely differently. You're like, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant at all. And like, no, don't lump him with that. Like, that's not, (laughs) that's not where I'm coming from. Like, you know, and it's, it's, it's a weird thing that happens where once you put your art out into the world, you, you can't, you know, you can't help how people are going to take it in. And sometimes it's completely fucking wrong. Yeah. But I I think, I, I do think that is the beauty of art though. I yeah. do think that that's something that you learn when you learn to live with that. There's something amazing about throwing art out into the world and then someone saying, I really like this about you. And then you're like, what? That's <laughs> all right. Cool. But I mean, but I think also for us, because I mean, yes, we had a scene and it was quite defined for a while in Umeå, like the Umeå hardcore scene. But as I said, we were super open-minded about music we we like all types of music i mean we listen to a lot of metal a lot of you know whatever you know mm-hmm. and for us a lot of the the scene politics of what was going on in america wasn't really that interesting for us you know we had a bigger agenda we had bigger and i mean we 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 loved sick of it all 
we also loved Born Against. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to pick sides. We're like, oh, I love Born Against. I love this, you know, like the abrasive attitude, like the the fucking madness of that and also musically. But I also love Sick of It All, you know. So it's like for us, you you come into the world sort of with – with wide open eyes and be like, Oh, I can like all these things. And then people tell you, no, no, you can't like both these things. And you like, you have to pick a side. And you know, like if your barcodes on your records, we're not going to review it in our fanzine. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's fucking crazy. You know, like, I think we have bigger problems in the world than barcodes. <laughs> and then people are like, no, we don't. And then, you know, <laughs> well, especially like, it's funny now that we're looking at it in 2019 and it's like, how irrelevant the barcode conversation is because no one's using everyone's on Spotify. Like no, yeah, one's, I know. no one's buying anything with a barcode. Like it's, it, it just moved. It just like, it, it's just amazing how like the, yeah, the scene politics, you know, so obviously there's some issues that are much larger than just scene politics that were being taken yeah. up too at the time. But, yeah. but like a lot of this stuff, yeah, it just feels negated by time. Yeah. But I think it's also, also looking back at a lot of the the so-called scene politics, a lot of it is people with a little bit too much time on their hands and maybe not enough real problems. Mm-hmm. So you can spend an uncertain, you know, you can spend a little bit too much time on worrying about stuff like that. And I mean, if you, if you lived in a world and the world is, I mean, it's a messed, messed up place. A lot of that, what 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 people spend their time arguing over now, seems so petty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, oh wow, that's oh that was a big thing. Wow, we were fighting about this. You know, but it, it's also you know like to be honest, like a lot of that also defines who we are today. You know, like a lot of those ideas that ran through the whole nineties, and and especially like especially in the late nineties where it became a different thing and. You know, everything became super political. And so, I mean, yeah, it all affected us and it all like made us sort of who we are today, which is, you know, that that's something, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No. And it's funny too. Like, it's like, it, it became like an industry, you know, like you'd buy the, the zine to see the fight in the letter section unfold because you knew there was going to be another chapter this month. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you know, it became like a, it's controversy creates cash and also kind of like, is a motivator of scene, you know, it kept people excited yeah. and kept people interested and, and engaged yeah. and, and, you know, much really, once again, talk, much larger issues also came up during this time period that needed to be addressed, yeah, of course. But, but with the smaller yeah. issues. It's just funny because a lot of that, I mean, being foreigners, being Europeans, like a lot of that really, I mean, yeah, we, I read heart attack and you know, all that, but I we missed out a lot of like the the hardcore uh, like all these fests mm-hmm. or all these like I'm a, I'm very good friends with Monty from Race Trader. Mm-hmm. The stories he tells me about the late '90s hardcore blows my mind. I mean, and I'm like oh, I never witnessed a lot of that like in in reality. I mean, I remember so in 1996 we play the Fireside Bowl with Refused and Snapcase. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we go up on stage and we talk about politics. And then this dude walks up to me after the show and he there, there's this whole, like, you know, you guys talk about politics, but you're on Victory Records. And then, you know, that's a whole conversation. And we sit and talk for, like, an hour. And, you know, like, I'm trying to defend, saying, like, you know, we're from Sweden. We don't really get a lot of chances to tour. And for us to be on Victory is a way, way you know, we, we can actually 
come over and tour and talk about things. And then someone says, but what about one life crew and blah, 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 you know, like that whole <laughs> yes. conversation. And then, so this goes on for like an hour or two and then, you know, we leave. And then, so maybe four years later, noise conspiracies is playing in Chicago. I think we, we showed up in Chicago the night before and we're at the Chicago diner or something like that late at night. Pick the pick me up cafe actually in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And this guy walks in and he points at me. And he's like, you're the refuse guy. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you're the race trader guy. And he's like, here's my phone number. Let's hang out tomorrow. And <laughs> since then we've been really good friends. <laughs> it's yeah. it's amazing how like also like as time goes on like you know it, it, like yeah like these enemies become people that you're like yeah we didn't have that much <laughs> like not yeah, common. there's not a whole lot of beef actually <laughs> yeah um i've kept you for a very long time and i gotta say this has been a huge thrill for me and i barely scratched the surface would you come back at some point for a part two dennis Yes, let's do part two. Let's do part two about Swedish punk. That I, I think I, we need to talk about that. I would love to, but before I let you go, can I ask you yes. a couple more questions? Yes. And then I'll let you, you live your life uh, without punishment that, <laughs> for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no worries. What was, like, you know, obviously this tour was, like, the big kind of, like, moment for you coming back and writing Shape of Punk to Come, but, like, what was, what also was the influences on that? Like, as far as just like, cause it's, it's such a unique record in that hardcore had become and all branches of hardcore at that time, it'd become very rigid in what you weren't and were supposed to do. And that yeah. record threw all the rules out the window completely. Yeah. That sounds well, so cheesy, like a TV show, but I could, there's no other way to yeah, put yeah, it. Yeah, No, no, but I, I know what you mean, but I think it was, first of all, there's, the, the creative elements of the band, like all of us, like what we were going through and where we were going with. And I think that tour, just coming home from that tour and, and just being like, not feeling that connected to, you know, the scene anymore. Mm-hmm. And just wanting to create something that kind of like, I mean, to, to the, the shape of punk to come is it could have been called fuck off basically that's kind of <laughs> what the title you know like that's kind of what it implies so he wanted to do something that that just you know transcended the the whatever we felt that you know hardcore punk rock became stale and boring blah 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 but i also think it was like we were all into different types of music we're all going in different directions and you know john wanted to do like he wanted to be a DJ and he wanted to do like like house music or jungle music or whatever that was. And I mean, I mean, Chris and Dave were really into like, you know, avant-garde music and Charles Mingus. And I was really into like punk rock. And mm-hmm. at that time, like a lot of like um, what maybe later became defined as like power pop and Northern Soul and that kind of stuff. And I kind of wanted to be in like a political punk band. Mm-hmm. So we had all these like different things that we wanted to put on the record and the interesting thing is that it's a record that's going to forever define my life no matter mm-hmm. what you know mm-hmm. and, it, and it's something that went on for a couple of months and you know writing and recording that record is you know it's a couple of months out of my 47 year old life it's that that's what it is those couple of months with everything that was going on in our personal life everything that we listening to at the moment created that perfect storm you know mm-hmm. and and it's one of those records that if we would have tried to record that record six months later 
it would have been impossible. We were already off in different directions. I mean, I was, you know, I started noise conspiracy like a day after Refuse broke up because I knew exactly where I wanted to do. But I think at that moment in time, like all our influences got like just this perfect sweet spot of everything that was going on, you know. And then, you know, the, yeah. Um, I just and I guess the last thing was Eric Wareheim on that tour that you guys did with Ink and Dagger. He left Ink and Dagger by that point. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, wait, what was the question? <laughs> was Eric Wareheim still in Ink and Dagger when you guys went on tour with him, or he had left the band by that point? I can't remember. I don't know. I don't think he was in the band. Yeah. Okay. It I was think- weird. It, it, yeah, yeah, it was weird because the the record came out. So it came out in in uh, in Europe. It came out in like. February of 98. Yeah. And we did a bunch of touring on that record. And I mean, when it came out, like the hardcore scene was not into it, you know, like the, the peak of our band was, was touring 96 uh, songs to fan the flames. That was kind of like the peak of our popularity, like the peak of like the, the whole hardcore scene around us. So when even, even in Sweden, came out, which, even with Sweden, yeah, especially in Sweden. Wow. I okay. I mean, I remember we had, we had the first show of the tour in Uppsala, um, and like forty people showed up, and we couldn't get the backing tracks working, and it was a fucking disaster. Mm-hmm. And I think that set the bar. We're like, oh shit, we're gonna go out and tour, and we hadn't practiced, which is funny now looking back at it because now we're so disciplined. And then we're like, we hadn't really practiced, like we weren't really getting along in the band. We had all these ideas how to work backing tracks and stuff, but we couldn't really figure it out. So mm-hmm. we went out and played, and it felt like people did not like it. And I mean, we were like weirdly pretentious and, and weird at the time. And the, the hardcore kids were going like, oh, these guys, fuck these guys. You know, like they're such sellouts. And then we toured for six months, and it was a couple of shows, a couple of tours were okay, but most of it was like a sense of defeat. And then we broke up. And then, you know, here we are almost 20 years later talking about that record and, and the impact that it had. But for us, the impact that it had was, oh, this is a failure. Like, yeah, people did not like this and they do not like us anymore. And we broke up and we went home and we were fucking bummed and we were like, we're failures, basically. It's That's, interesting. It, well, yeah, because it's so wild because I remember, like, just from, like, you know, the, the fan perspective, I remember that record coming out and, you know, I, I, you know, thought you guys were good up until that point. Like I'd been a fan, but then that record came out and my friend got it first because he was living in Europe at the time and sent me a tape of it. And he's like, you just got to hear this. And it was just like this thing that kind of felt like, I know I remember walking into a record store in Toronto and the, the manager of the record store had got a preview copy and was freaking out. And it was just like this thing that felt like it was building. But I guess when you're in it, you don't see it. Right, like you just you're just living no, it day no. by day. Yeah, we were living it, and then I mean, you're you're doing the record, and I mean, it came out. Uh, we did the U.S. tour, and I mean, the record came out right after we broke up, basically. So yeah. I mean, the record wasn't even out when we toured the states. And, you know, like four shows into the tour, we broke up. We played a couple more shows to make it so we could fly home. And I mean, we were just in it, and we weren't having a good time. We weren't enjoying what was going on around us in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that of course affected how we felt about the music. And then all of a sudden people were like, Oh, they're, sh- they're showing your video on MTV. And like, everybody loves this record. And we're like, what? And then, <laughs> I mean, 
at that point I was already out playing shows with noise conspiracy. I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird, you know. But that's also the beauty of art, you know. It, you never know where it's going to go and, you know, how it's going to be perceived or what people are going to think about it. And, and I mean, it that record and our band kind of had a life of its own for a very long time. And a lot of times when people came up to me and talked about reviews, I felt super disconnected. I'm like... Oh yeah, that band. Yeah, I heard about those guys. You know, and yeah, then, yeah. you know, it took it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that that's a fucking great record. You know, and we were a great band because you know at the end, that's not how it felt for us. And uh, I guess before I let you go, the last thing is I got to bring up because it's one of my favorite bands of all time. Criminally, criminally underrated. The final exit stuff. Uh, <laughs> I love that the final exit record. And actually, the first time I interviewed you. I think I asked you exclusively final exit questions. <laughs> that, that, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, uh, final exit was like our way of, uh, I mean, we're into old school punk and hardcore. And it's kind of yeah. our way of letting off steam and just doing something different. And, you know, we, we, uh, it was very tongue in cheek, but it was also pretty awesome. There's a lot yeah. of cool riffs. There's a lot of cool ideas and, David's voice is just fucking super brutal. You know? It sounds and, so uh, pissed. It's like amazing how pissed he sounds. I know. He's got a voice. He's got like, he's one of those dudes that like, you know, like when you sing in your output, like my output, when I sing, it's super loud. Like in mm-hmm. the room, I sing mm-hmm. super loud. David's one of those dudes where like his voice is so raw, but there's no output. Just like, <sighs> and then he's also one of those guys that like, he lost i mean his voice was gone after like four songs it was gone but <laughs> yeah. it was it was fun i mean we did it was kind of a joke and we did all these interviews where we talked shit about refuse and we talked shit about Amy harker and we're like oh fuck those guys and we didn't we hardly ever played out of our hometown but in 97 we did a short short uh tour of sweden and there's a lot of shows where we showed up and the and the people that booked the show they're like Oh fuck! It's you guys. Oh come on! And we're like, yeah, yeah. Final Exit is us. Like, oh man, you know. So that was quite fun. That's awesome. It was quite a yeah. yeah. Wasn't there like a super man. militant Swedish hardcore band like Sarah Millat? No, no. What's the band I'm thinking of? Wasn't there like a an old school Swedish hardcore band that's super straight edge? I mean, there was a, a Swedish band called Svart Parad. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Early early eighties and there was straight edge, but I think it was they were like one of those raw punk bands. And I think I don't think they were all straight edge. But yeah, there there was that. And I mean but that was before uh, before our time. That was like a different you know, universe. Yeah, well well, (laughs) would would the influence have been like Project X, I guess then? I'm not sure what what they were into. I think I no, mean, I mean a lot of those I mean for sorry, you guys. Yeah, yeah, for oh yeah, yeah, for for Final X, yeah, definitely like Project X and and you know, even funny, like the first song we ever wrote, I wasn't like I wasn't there when we wrote the first song. We like the, it was it was the guitar player that played on the first Refuse rec- records that then went on to Abenanda, because he wrote a lot of riffs for Final Exit as well. And he was really into you remember Raid, like oh, the vegan. Yes, he was really into that band. So he wrote some riffs, and we we're like, oh, this is kind of funny. And then you know that evolved into like more of an old school kind of sound. But I, I remember like. There was a song that I don't think is on any of the records, but it's like the first Final Exit song. It's super influenced by Raid. We're like this, this <laughs> vegan militant, <laughs> like kind of a kind of a joke. And here's here's a funny story. I'm not. We were uh, 
we did a show. We 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 put up a, a Earth Crisis show in Umeå in must have been ninety six or maybe ninety seven, mm-hmm. and uh, Carl came to. Uh, David's uh, the show is right by David's parents' house, so we had we had everybody come to David's parents' house to eat food, mm-hmm. and we played him the final exit record, and Carl went back and started Path of Resistance. Oh, and I'm not you know like I'm not you know I'm not going to swear on 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 my savings and my recollection, but I think that's what happened. Yeah, and I think for us it was kind of like a joke, this like tongue in cheek like militant strategy thing. Not sure it was as tongue in cheek with path resistance, but <laughs> no. maybe I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so you, you had whole other streams of influences on hardcore outside of refuse as well. <laughs> I guess <laughs> not. Not not that we tried or that. I think that was inwardly just like it just happened. <laughs> well, Dennis, this has been a huge thrill. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Yes, it was it was awesome, and let's let's do it again, and then. There's plenty more of Swedish hardcore and punk to talk about, so yeah. Thank you, Dennis, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, Dennis will be back for part two at some point in the future. When he's ready, so am I, because, oh, that was a lot of fun. I am stoked. Ah, that's one of those ones that I felt like I've been holding on to for a long time. Like, I had to get that out of my system. So, oh, I feel good. I feel good. Speaking of feeling good... Next week on the show, we're going to keep the good vibes coming because next week on the show, my good buddy, Brandon from Chastity, is on the show. Chastity have a brand new album that just dropped on the great Captured Tracks, which features the uh, the behind-the-scene efforts of our good friend around the show, Dave Martin. So, you know, kind of like a, a family affair on a lot of levels, too, because the new Chastity record also features a series of videos starring my eldest child, Holden. So, a total f- family affair. I'm a huge fan of this band. Their last record was one of my favorite records uh, of the year it came out. I think it's 2016, 17... I'm trying to remember now. Uh, And their new record is definitely going to be one of my favorites of this year as well. So that is next week on the show. I'm really excited for you to hear this. This is a fun conversation. Uh, A lot of, yeah, a lot of cool stuff. It goes, it's an honest conversation. Probably one of the most honest conversations I've ever had on Turned Out of Punk. Um, But that is next week on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm so uh, stoked that I get to do this thing each and every week for you all and that you all are here checking it out and telling people about it. And, yeah, um, that's it. Uh, uh, Once again, go out there and sign your organ donor cards because that shit works. My uncle's doing really well, who I told you last week received a heart transplant after waiting for years, years, like uh, six years, seven years. Uh, and now he's got his heart, so go out there and sign those organ donor cards because you're not going to need them, and they can really change someone else's life. I promise you. Uh, also, go out there and make your own culture. Go and try and create something because right now the world can get pretty depressing and can bog you down. But making something can sometimes make you feel good. You know, putting something out in the world and sharing with people and stuff. So go do that and just stay safe. Uh, love you. See you next week. Thank you.